two or three years ago, I, I did a series on heaven. Our church had experienced a number of deaths. They tend to come in threes, and uh, I had experienced deaths in my family. So I was doing funerals in North Alabama, and then, of course, even in our church. And so I, I did ten messages on heaven entitled, Heaven, the Christian's Future Home. And I followed that with six messages on the angels of heaven. But in the series on heaven, the Christian's future home, I, I tried to answer one question, and that was, what kind of place is heaven? And so last Sunday, we dealt with the point, heaven is a place where redeemed spirits go at death. Very encouraging message. And then today I'm going to deal with another point, heaven is a place where eternal rewards are laid up. And I'm going to ask you to go to Matthew chapter 19 this morning. The text for this message is actually chapter 19, verse 27 through chapter 20, uh, chapter 20, verse 16. Heavenly Father, guide my thoughts by thy Holy Spirit today. Encourage us, exhort us through your word to serve you with the right motivation. I pray that you would teach us today what that motivation ought to be. In Jesus' precious name we do pray. Amen. You know, when we talk about eternal rewards, we have to talk about grace. Um, As born-again Christians, we believe that we are saved by grace apart from works. Amen? Amen. But when it comes to the matter of rewards, most of us were taught that we will be rewarded according to our work. We are saved by grace, but we live by the sweat of our brow. The more we sweat, the more we will be rewarded, and the less we sweat, the less we will be rewarded. But according to the Scriptures... Just as salvation is by grace and not the result of our merit, eternal rewards are the result of grace and not our merit. Now, I'm going to begin the message this morning by looking first at saving grace, and then we'll move to that point of the message, eternal rewards are the result of grace and not merit, all right? So this is what we're going to do. Um, And I want to recommend to you Jerry Bridges' book, Transforming Grace. Uh, It's been a great help to me. Um, If I am not in heaven now, I expect to be there at some point within the next, oh, say, 50 years. All right, you're smiling, so that means I'm stretching it a bit. All right, a good bit. I will be there, though, not because of any merit of my own, but because I am saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ alone. Amen? Amen. And that's true for every person who expects to be in heaven. A text that's familiar to all of us would probably be Ephesians 2, 8, 9. For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It's a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. The works, though, come into picture, or into the picture in verse 10 
of Ephesians 2, for we are His workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Good works are not the means of salvation. Grace is. But good works do spring from saving grace. Grace and good works, that is, works done to earn favor with God, are mutually exclusive, meaning that we cannot stand with one foot in grace and the other foot in our own work or our own merit. For instance, God's saving grace is not dispensed through the gospel plus baptism. God's saving grace is not dispensed through the gospel plus the communion elements. God's saving grace is not dispensed through the gospel plus good deeds. God's saving grace is not dispensed through the gospel plus church membership. God's saving grace is not dispensed through the gospel plus religion or morality. Isaiah chapter 55 verse 1 says, Ho, everyone who thirst, come to the waters, and you who have no money, come, buy and eat. Yes, come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Wow, what a wonderful picture of the gospel invitation. The gospel invites us to come without money. The gospel invites us to come with no good works. The gospel invites us to buy salvation without cost. It is extended to those who don't it is not extended to those who don't have enough. It is extended to those who have absolutely nothing. That's saving grace. Amen. If you want a working definition of grace, then here it is. Grace is not God making up the difference where we lack. Grace is God providing all the cost of salvation through His Son, Jesus Christ. It is through His merit that saving grace comes to us. Think about this. Grace... And I'm thinking about some elderly folk. Uh, My grandparents, for instance. Maybe you think of your grandparents, for instance, and they're getting aged, but they want absolutely no help. No assistance at all. I can do it. Well, sometimes they are right and sometimes they're wrong. But when we think about grace, grace doesn't... um, Grace doesn't consider our merit at all. And the example I just gave you comes down later on, so just stay with me here. It's through His merit that saving grace comes to us. In other words, grace doesn't consider our merit at all, or it wouldn't be grace. Grace is God's pure, undeserved, unadulterated, unrecompensed kindness and favor. You can't add anything to it and you can't take anything away from it. But grace cuts both ways. Not only does God's saving grace 
not consider a person's merit in saving them. It doesn't consider their demerit either. For instance, many years ago, uh, as a GI on the island of Okinawa, um, we, we would go down to the streets. Um, a group of us would, um, would go down to the di- nightclub district and witness to the GIs. Friday and Saturday nights, boy, those streets were packed with Navy, with Marine Corps, with Air Force, Coast Guard, all of them. And so we would just get on a corner and they would have to walk through us to get <laughs> around, uh, to get through us. So they, they would have to walk through us to get on down. And so one evening um, I encountered a Marine and as I shared the gospel with him, He said something that stays with me to this very day. He said that it was too late for him to be saved. He was convinced that he had crossed some line in the sand that put him beyond saving. And I could not convince him otherwise. I am still to this day, 40-something years later, trying to convince him in my mind, still seeing him at that corner on that night. Was God withholding saving grace from this man because he had too many demerits? No. Was he too sinful to be saved? No. No, grace would not be grace if God was forced to withhold it because of greater sin. God's saving grace, as a matter of fact, is so powerful and so glorious because we are so helpless. Do you remember Paul's words about us in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1? We were dead in trespasses and sins. God's saving grace cannot be extended where there is even the slightest hint of human merit. The five-year-old child who cries out to God for salvation needs the same amount of grace as the drunkard or the prostitute or the pagan who cries out to God for salvation. Amen? Amen. The same amount of grace. It doesn't matter whether one person has sinned less and the other person has sinned more. Grace doesn't take into consideration our merit or demerit. If it did, then it would no longer be grace, but works. And so that leads me to say this to you this morning. If you are trusting in the least bit in your own personal goodness or church membership or good deeds or the communion elements or your morality or in your baptism to get you to heaven, then you don't understand saving grace. And you need to seriously question whether you are truly a Christian. Now here comes the grandmother illustration. Some of you may have grandparents or other folks who just won't take any assistance at all. They could be right and they could be wrong. But when it comes to saving grace, grace refuses any 
and all assistance when it comes to the salvation of a soul. That's why saving grace is called a gift in Scripture. For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It's the gift of God. Ephesians 2.8 Romans 6.23 For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. Those who are genuinely saved have come to Jesus with the attitude expressed in the words of the old hymn, Rock of Ages. Nothing in my hands I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. And I trust that's your testimony. That's my testimony. Now that brings us to the point of the message this morning. Of course, heaven is a place where eternal rewards are laid up. And the first thing about it is eternal rewards are the result of grace and not merit. The Scripture makes very clear that God deals with sinners on the basis of grace and not merit or demerit. If He dealt with us according to what we deserve, oh my, we would all be in hell. But praise the Lord He didn't. Amen? Amen. And He deals with His children on the basis of grace and not merit or demerit either. You are at Matthew chapter 19. Would you look at verse 27? Peter's expecting something from Jesus. Look at verse 27. Then Peter answered and said to him, See, we have left all and followed you. Therefore, what shall we have? And so Peter pipes up and asks Jesus what he and the other disciples would get for their great sacrifice. Now, in one sense, they had left all, right? I mean, what was the occupation of Peter, Andrew, James, and John? What were they? Fishermen. fishermen. They were fishermen. They left it all. Do you remember Matthew? What was Matthew's job? He was a tax collector. He left it all. And all the money that came with it. So in one sense, they had left all. But then the, and their thinking, but their thinking was that their great sacrifice had earned them merit points. In other words, the more sweat, the greater the rewards. And so Jesus responds to Peter in verses 28 and 29. So Jesus said to them, Assuredly, I say to you that in the regeneration, when the Son of Man sits on the throne of His glory, you who have followed Me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or lands for My name's sake shall receive a hundredfold and inherit eternal life." And so Jesus responds to Peter by telling him that he and the other disciples would be rewarded for their sacrificial service in the regeneration or in the kingdom. As will everyone who has sacrificed for Jesus' sake. And then Jesus goes on down in the latter part of verse 29 
and says, as a matter of fact, the reward will be much greater than your sacrifice, Peter. Look at the latter part of verse 29. Jesus says that they will receive 100 times as much as they sacrificed. Now, in the financial world, that would be considered a -a once-in-a-lifetime investment. The investment wouldn't double just once, it would double a hundred times. And Jesus uses this outlandish number to make the point that God's reward will be far greater than our sacrifice and service to Him could ever be. It's going to be beyond imagination. That's because... Heaven's reward system is not based on merit, but grace. But Jesus is also pressing an important, uh, an important point home here to Peter and to us. And that is that God is a debtor to no man. I want you to look at Peter's question again in verse 27. The very end of it, he says, Therefore, what shall we have? You see, in Peter's mind, their sacrifice meant that God owed them something. But the truth is, God owes us nothing. Whatever reward we receive from Him is the result of His grace, not our works. Those who serve Christ with the attitude that their sacrifice places God under some obligation to them will be very surprised when they go into the kingdom. Look at verse 30 there. But many who are first will be last and the last first. In other words, those who think they deserve to be first in line when rewards are given out will actually be last in line. Why? Because heaven's reward system doesn't operate like the world's payment system does. We can get that mixed up. And so in chapter 20, if you'll flow down there in verses 1 through 16, Jesus illustrates that point with the parable of the generous landowner. Now, in the story, God is the generous landowner. Would you look? I'm going to read it quickly. Chapter 20, verses 1 through 16. And what he's illustrating here is what I said. Heaven's reward system doesn't operate like the world's payment system does. For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. Now when he had agreed with the laborers for a denarius a day, he sent them into his vineyard. And he went out about the third hour and saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And he said to them, You also go into the vineyard, and whatever is right, I will give you. So they went. Verse 5, Again, he went out about the sixth hour and the ninth hour and did likewise. And about the eleventh hour he went out and found others standing idle and said to them, Why have you been standing here idle all day? They said to him, Because no one hired us. He said to them, You also go into the vineyard, and whatever is right you will receive. 
So when evening had come, the owner of the vineyard said to his steward, Call the laborers and give them their wages, beginning with the last to the first. And when those who came, those came who were hired about the eleventh hour, they each received a denarius. But when the first came, they supposed that they would receive more. And they likewise received each a denarius. And when they had received it, they complained against the landowner, saying, These last men have worked only one hour, and you made them equal to us who have borne the burden and the heat of the day. But he answered one of them and said, Friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what is yours and go your way. I wish to give to this last man the same as to you. Is it lawful? Is it not lawful for me to do what I wish with my own things, or is it your eye, or is your eye evil because I am good? So the last will be first, and the first last. For many are called, but few chosen. Now I ask you this question: Was the landowner fair, or was he unfair? Now, from a human perspective, I'm pretty sure that we would say that the landowner was unfair. Because in our way of thinking, a day's work deserves a day pay, day's pay, right? In other words, the more we sweat, the greater the reward. And so we instinctively identify with the workers who worked all day. We would have been with them pointing our finger at the landowner saying, Not fair! We place ourselves in their shoes, not in the shoes of those who only worked an hour. That's because we look upon ourselves as 12-hour workers and we expect to be paid accordingly. Our sacrifice means that the employer owes us. He is obligated to pay. Now, that's true of this world's payment system, right? If I'm going to give the employer 8 to 10 to 12 hours, well, at the end of the week, I'm going to expect payment, right? An employee who works less hours than me, he works a half a day, I work a full day. He or she works a half a week, I work a full week. Now, if they got the same pay as me, I would be angry, would you not? That's not fair! Our mistake is in believing that it's also true of heaven's reward system. You see, by identifying ourselves with the workers who complain, we are also identifying with Peter. We have to remember that God is obligated to no one. Our Heavenly Father has every right to expect obedience, service, and sacrifice from us without making himself a debtor to us. And all of God's people said, Amen. Amen to that. Remember Job? Job complained big time because of everything that had happened to him. I mean, he wanted to bring God into court. 
He expected better treatment from God because he was blameless and upright and one that feared God and shunned evil. As a matter of fact, chapter 34, verse 9 records Job's attitude. It profits a man nothing that he should delight in God. No profit! What good does it do me that I have God's favor? There's no return, no profit for me. We feel like that through a trial many times, don't we? They get they come our way and we're going through it and it's a valley experience and boy we can we can howl. God rebukes Job in chapter 41, verse 11. Listen to this. Who has preceded me that I should pay him? Everything into heaven is mine. You see, Job's attitude was the same as the 12-hour workers in verse 12, who have borne the burden and the heat of the day. Job had borne the burden and the heat of the day But what did it profit him, he says? This represents, by the way, the attitude of a lot of Christians today. All right? I'm going to illustrate it to you with a couple of stories. A godly mother has faithfully served the Lord for 40 years. And now she is suffering from cancer. And the son or daughter cries out to God, Lord... You know how faithful mom has been to you all these years. She has sacrificed so much. Now, Lord, she needs you to come through for her. Please come through. You see, the son and daughter is thinking like the 12-hour workers. Mom has earned merit points. Here's another. A Christian couple refuses, key word, to get health insurance because their attitude is, we're serving the Lord faithfully, making all kinds of sacrifices, so it's up to Him to keep us healthy. Do you see, their attitude also is like the 12-hour workers. They have earned merit points. Here's another. A Christian couple refuses, key word, to do any financial planning for the future because their attitude is, we're taking care of God's business now. It's up to Him to take care of ours later on. Again, their attitude is like the 12-hour workers. Their merit points accumulated through years, through the years, obligates God to take care of them. Do you see, sadly, these are the people that will be last when it comes to eternal rewards because their motive for serving Christ was all wrong. It's all wrong. The point of Jesus' parable here in, verse tw- in, in chapter 20 is that whatever rewards we receive will not be because of our merit It will be because of His amazing grace. I loved that song this morning. I got so carried away with the singing this morning. Good choice of song. I I may have made a mistake on how to turn this thing on. God's amazing grace. 
which comes to us as a gift, just like our salvation. There is nothing that you can do to earn more of God's favor or less of God's favor. You are in His favor if you are one of His own. When a Christian views the Christian life as a set of rules to be followed, then they are never sure if they are in God's favor or out of His favor. Their worry is, have I prayed enough? Have I read enough? Have I given enough? Have I served enough? And without realizing it, they are worried about how many demerits they've accumulated. Have you ever entertained thoughts like that? I have. When you come to understand grace, it will free you from the performance performance treadmill so that you may serve Christ for the real motive He wants you to serve Him, and that is love. Love. It was love, by the way, that compelled God to give His Son as a sacrifice for our sins, right? For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believeth on Him should not perish, but have everlasting love. That same love with which He loved us should compel us. Listen to Paul. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 14 and 15. For the love of Christ compels us because we judge thus that if one died for all, then all died. And he died for all that those who live should live no longer for themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again. Our obedience, our commitment, Our sacrifice to Christ and His church is not to be motivated by fear or favor, but by love. The love of Christ that was demonstrated on the cross when He died for our sins. According to Paul, that love motivates us to no longer live for ourselves. Man, that's significant right there. That's starred. Star that in your mind. The love of Christ demonstrated for to us on the cross, Paul says, should motivate us to no longer live for ourselves, but for Him who died for us and rose again. You see, just as grace didn't take into consideration your merit or demerit in saving you, grace will not take into consideration your merit or demerit in rewarding you. God will, on the other hand, take into consideration your love for Him. Jude 21 warns us to keep yourselves in the love of God. In other words, don't let your love grow cold. Don't make your motivation something else. Don't put rewards, the desire for rewards, ahead of love. 
Don't put God's favor ahead of love. You're already in His favor. Don't let your love grow cold because when that happens, you run the danger of serving Christ for the wrong motive or not serving Him at all. Works are important. James makes that very clear in chapter 2, verse 17. Thus also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is, is, is what? Dead. 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 Works are important because they represent a loving response to God's saving grace. Remember what Paul said in Ephesians 2.10? Good works flow from saving grace. And so what kind of place is heaven? Well, heaven is a place where eternal rewards are laid up. Amen? Now, in closing, let me challenge you. You may be here today and are guilty of obeying Christ and serving Christ for the wrong motive. It can easily happen. Now, you can't do anything about the past, but you can change the future. You can serve Him out of love. In other words, make Christ's love for you and your love for Christ the motivating reason you persevere in the faith and you labor till you go to Him or He comes to you. Because the promise is that rewards will be greater than you can ever imagine. And here's the second thing I want to challenge you with. You may be here today and you're guilty of disobeying the known will of God, just living in disobedience because you don't want to appear to be legalistic. And maybe you've used that reason. You pulled that card for not serving Christ, not living for Him. Don't want to be a legalist. But Paul says in Romans 6 that you twist God's grace into something that it is not. Romans 6, 1 and 2, What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Certainly not. How shall we who died into sin live any longer in it? We are saved by grace and not by works. We will be rewarded according to grace and not by works. Our works are important. You better believe it. Our works are important in that they represent a loving response to His amazing, saving grace. And then lastly, you may be here today, because I don't know anyone's heart, and this is the first time you've ever understood saving grace. Maybe you've depended on some of these other things I listed earlier. Your own morality, the communion elements, church membership, baptism, and so forth. But you've come to realize that you're not saved. And I would urge you to come to Christ today for salvation. Nothing in your hands you bring, only to Christ you cling. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for 
these texts of Scripture that bear out the great truth that just as we're saved by grace apart from works or apart from our merit or demerit, you will reward according to grace and not by our works, not by our merit or demerit. Help us when we consider eternal rewards not to think like this world. We have to go beyond this world's payment system and think about your reward system. Help us, I pray, to be motivated by love as we serve you, as we labor for you and persevere in this faith. In Jesus' name we do pray. Amen.